Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode five of season three of Game Sense. Uh, I'm standing in for Francis tonight. He is on the road uh, for work for our generous sponsor, Symbotic. Uh, they're a warehouse automation company. You can find out more about them at symbotic.com. That's with a Y. Uh, with us tonight on set, uh, we have Evan Morrison, Naveed Shafa, Ty Tremblay, and Mike Heimlich. Uh, and behind the scenes, we've got Steph Morrison running the show. Uh, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, hi. Um, yeah, I uh, started out um, in FRC back in 2008 New Hampshire before I moved to, um, to uh, Australia in 2009. I, I got my start on 2342 Team Phoenix, um, where uh, I had a bunch of seasoned mentors starting that team in 2008, and I got to learn a whole lot. Uh, we brought that here in 2009 and um, just sort of... Uh, Decided to start the one team after uh, after first said no a couple times. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Um, but uh, but since then the program's really taken off, and um, it's been uh, it's been absolutely incredible what uh, what we've been able to accomplish here in Australia. Um, I guess I'll talk about it a little bit more later on. But right now I'm the lead mentor for uh, Team Thirty One Thirty Two Thunder Down Under, and uh, we're just uh, having one of those uh, dream seasons, I guess. Sounds fantastic. Um, so we're going to have a Q&A session uh, after the show. Um, so if you guys watching the show on Twitch TV want to ask us a question, submit it with exclamation point Q or exclamation point question, and uh, Game Sense Bot will pick out the good ones and we'll answer those in, after the show. And just a quick disclaimer, we don't take ourselves too seriously, so you shouldn't either. Have fun, and if you don't like what we say, go out and prove us wrong. This week on the show, we're going to discuss rookie successes so far, driver visibility, heavy defense, penalties, and how those are affecting the gameplay, and what we're expecting to see in eliminations through the end of the season and into World Champs. But first, let's go around the horn with observations from week three. Uh, yeah, so um, I guess one of the things that uh, we were really surprised about, not only in Australia, but across the board, uh, when we were in Minnesota as well, I'm looking forward next week when we get to Hawaii, is really the level of play of um, of um, the rookies and <clears throat> the way that <clears throat> the gameplay in particular uh, in Australia was maturing, where we're seeing some really sophisticated uh, or more sophisticated techniques than you'd expect for a, for a second-year regional. So it's really promising. All right. And Ty, how about you? Uh, to, to go off what we were saying about the rookies, I really think the rest of FRC is really seeming to figure this game out. And I think what we're going to start seeing, and we saw it up at New York Tech Valley with 359, we're going to start seeing that you need to have at least a capture or two in your qualification matches in order to get that number one seed and secure your destiny throughout eliminations. Right. Sorry, playoffs. <laughs> Naveed, what'd you uh, get from week three? I'd, I'd follow up on what Ty just said, and I think at events where you don't see teams capable of getting one of those captures, if not a couple at least, in their matches, you start seeing a little bit of a, an interesting development in terms of the rankings, and it can lead to kind of a scorched earth scenario. We saw that this weekend at Central to some extent, and I expect that we may see it a little bit more um, at the subdivision level even. All right. Uh, Evan, anything from you? Yeah, um, I've really started to notice, um, I mean, we talked last week about how close some of these matches have started to get, especially in playoffs, um, and the teams that are climbing are, are really setting themselves a, a, above the rest, literally and figuratively. Um, 
by being able to get those extra 10 points at the end of the match. And so I think we're going to start seeing an increasing importance on the ability to, to scale um, at the end of the matches as we move through the season. All right. And uh, I guess the big takeaway for me this week is that we're only three weeks, well, three and a half weeks into the season, and the fields are taking an absolute beating. But it seems that they finally fixed that issue with low bar. So we're going to have to see how those hold up through the rest of the season. Um, so, Mike, let's send it over to you. Uh, what did you see for uh, any outstanding performance at Australia? Yeah, well, be before we get into that, I just want to pick up on the field thing because I was part of the, the – every night after the teams went home, I, I, a group of us stayed back and helped get the field ready for the next day. And the carnage was just uh, absolute, I have to tell you, especially in terms of drawbridge and sully port. A lot of cracked uh, polycarb for those dividers and, and on the batter as well. So um, I'm not sure that, you know, while things like the low bar and, and maybe the Cheval de Frise are under control now, I think we're still going to see a lot of field carnage um, just because the sheer brutality of the game. Um, but in terms of Australia, one of the things uh, I really wanted to talk about was um, to sort of put the Australian regional in a, in a bit of context. Um, last year, we had some great participation from U.S. teams, 359, 3008, came over. Um, this year, we had the Chicago Knights come over, but for the most part, it was really just a, uh, an international uh, event with uh, Singapore, China, Taiwan. Uh, we had three teams from Taiwan show up, um, and uh, one team from the U.S., and then we had this just enormous tidal wave of Australian teams um, starting up. And um, one of the things people have to understand about Australia, and, and as we get more international events, is the reality of international FRC is that it's it's not just access to parts and it's not just um, you know, having one day less build season. Uh, you know, for us to get to some quality events, let's take um, you know Hawaii is the closest U.S.-based event. Uh, most of our international teams here in the Asia Pacific need to hop on a a ten-hour flight. Um, and the cost of that is about $30,000 to get your team over there. So you're talking about enough money to start basically five, five rookie teams. So if you really want to get to a level where you're, um, you're participating at sort of a competitive um, showing when you get to championship, if you get to championship, you need to do more than just go to some international events. Um, we started seeing this back in 2011 when we uh, helped the, D the Dominican Republic get their first team started, 4009. We started the first two teams in China a little bit after that. Um, and then we started the Duel Down Under off-season event to try to get teams uh, up and running before we, uh, we had to send them off to a, a U.S.-based regional. And we sort of saw teams get pooled into two different areas. You know, uh, like my experience on 2342, either you have experienced mentors and your rookie teams really get a leg up understanding what it takes to do a build season, or you're basically just dropping a kid off and leaving teams up to their own device. Um, you know, even though we may tell teams stay away from the pneumatics, that's a whole other set of rules you don't need to understand. It's, it's like moths to a flame and they just want to make it more complicated. So we sort of had this, we see this, uh, I guess, rise of two sorts of rookies, those who've got some experienced mentoring help and those who just get the kit dropped off. And we decided to do something about that with a program we started this year called Robots in the Outback, where we invited some senior mentors over from the U.S. We had a NASA engineer come over. We took some of our more experienced mentors here in Australia, and we actually sent them out to these rookie teams for the build season. And we showed them how you go through a process um, of going through the rules and really building a robot to get ready. And I think the result of that, when you look at the Australia Regional, 
was that we had some phenomenal success for the rookies. I mean, coming through the quals, we had Project Bucephalus uh, ranked second and first for a good portion of the quals. Um, some of these robots in the Outback team, these Rito teams that we sent uh, experienced people out to, I think something like a third of them made it into the, the playoff round. Um, and we saw them really, really uh, competing and, and having a good showing um, through, the, uh, through the elimination rounds. So I think that going forward, as, as FIRST grows, um, not only internationally, but domestically in the U.S., we need to really look at how we support our rookie teams and make a real investment in them so when we get to the regionals, we could see this high level of play. And I think more than any other place, we're going to continue to see that evolve here in Australia. Um, and we're sort of committed as, as an Australian team, 3132 and, and other teams over here, to making sure that we raise that bar because as we do that, the play gets better for all of us. And, you know, for the six teams that make it on to champs from the Australia regional, they're going to be that much more prepared. So if I go back and look into what, what some of the things that we saw in, in uh, the Australia regional, you know, I talked about the rookie teams making it into the elimination rounds. We were rookie teams who were able to take down the defenses all on their own. Uh, there were rookie teams who could put a few in the low goal. Um, we didn't have rookie teams per se that could shoot high, but we had Marsden 5087, really a second-year team coming into their own, able to put it in the high goal. Um, and although they were a third pick, they were sort of the diamond in the rough because they didn't get a good uh, good round of selections. I think they were ranked 23rd or something coming out of quals. But they consistently could put in the high goal. We had Red Hurricane from China, another second-year team, uh, able to demonstrate some high goal capability. And I think all this goes back to what I was saying before about investing in these teams and not just um, you know seeing them at the competition, mm -hmm. putting in a real effort. Uh, you know we made we made six trips to China to help out those teams. Uh, we stay in contact with them during build season. I can't tell you how many Skype calls we do. But I think I think mm -hmm. as a community, experienced FRC teams, it's sort of incumbent on us to step it up and you know do this bit of GP so that when we get to the game, when we get to the field. Uh, we're preparing our teams representing that regional um, out at championship. And yeah. so it was really exciting. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and, and say, you know, um, you're absolutely right. And I think we've seen it with a few other teams this year. Um, Vicotics 5920 out here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, they had a few experienced mentors, not a not a huge amount of first experience, but enough to know to keep it simple and to stick with it. And they were able to build, you know, an effective drivetrain and a, a simple manipulator and a, a, a just a ball, you know, nothing fancy, but just a roller to suck the ball in, spit the ball out. They were number one seed at their first event uh, out in West Valley. They were number four seed at Central Washington. Um, you know, and they're going to district championships now in Pacific Northwest um, as one of the higher point teams um, with a really good chance to make it to, to championships. And just, I think, uh, I think the ability to to tackle parts of the game effectively um, and kind of segregate is is huge. Yeah, I think the the difficulty of this game is what really set is what really set things in motion for the rookies. Um, there's a lot of times in FRC where you see the game, for example, like 2014, where you see the game, you're like, oh, cool, big ball, throw in, big goal, awesome. We'll be great at it. And then you get tripped up in the execution there. 
Whereas this year was so obviously complex and so obviously difficult a task mm -hmm. to be able to do everything in, it forced these rookie teams to say, okay, look, we're rookies. This is going to be really hard. Let's find the one thing that we can do and be good at it. And I think that that's, I think that that's really good for FRC this year, especially because it'll, they'll see that success and hopefully they can take that into their next year and apply the same mentality to next year. What do you think, Naveen? Yeah, I think it's really an attribute to the game design itself. I think they made the opportunities there for teams to add different systems for different parts of the game, but because of the point values, because of how the game itself is laid out, it really lends itself in a, in a great way to put a rookie in the best position I think they've been in an, in quite a few years. I mean, like we've said before, building a, a robust and effective drive base scores you points, and if you've done it well and you can do it efficiently, I mean, you can be a contributor to your alliance. Um, we're starting to see now, I mean, yes, you need those, those locals as well as probably being that next step for a rookie, but if you can do that, you're effectively contributing to uh, increasing ranking points and not just getting the win. Right, right, and... Um... So as Ty said, we're dealing with an extremely complicated and uh, complex game this year. And something that we're really seeing starting to pop up is a lot of issues with driver visibility and defense and penalties. Uh, Evan or Ty, you guys want to kick us off with that? Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest difference is the stark contrast between... Um, what we see in the stands and on the and on the the um, video screen and what the refs see versus what the drivers see um, from behind the station, um, and so we've all talked about how visibility is difficult and some teams have their camera pull setups with the screen to help them get a more top-down view, um, but uh, there's an interesting situation that happened this weekend. Um, at the Mount Vernon event, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last situation like it. Um, and I think we have some video of it where um, the uh, CPR 3663 is playing offense, and they're behind the sally port, um, or opposite side of the sally port from their driver, and they end up pushing uh, 4070 completely on their back here. Um, and so what you see in the video and what the refs see is like a poster child for red card um, for G24 intentional intentionally uh, incapacitating a robot, right? They've got ample opportunity to stop uh, doing this and 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 let the robot come back down on its wheels. Um, and but it turns out that it's not quite as clear cut as that. Um, the we talked with the driver of the team a little bit, and he said after watching the video, he certainly felt that. Um, the red card was the right call from the ref's perspective, but from his perspective, these are both very low robots. He can't see his robot very well. He can just see the, the top of it. He can't see their robot at all. So he sees the bumpers of 4070 come up and then sees them go back down. And at that point, he's actually assumed that they came back down on their wheels and he was clear to keep pushing. Um, and notably, this was all just bumper to bumper contact. So um, I want to hear what, what the rest of you guys have to say about this, but, you know, should this be a red card, really? Or is this a case where intent matters so much that, you know, can, can, you, can you let them off the hook because they can't see it? I mean, 
I think it's tough in the moment, and I and I do think in that in that same position that I would make the same call that the ref did at the time, mm-hmm. and it is it is hard to judge intent, but um, this game definitely lends itself to that, and I am concerned. Yes, we see Sally Ports here, but it can be even worse if drawbridges get played in a limbs, and we've noticed that a lot too. Is that um, with that out there, or even the portcullis, even with its uh, additional height, it may be somewhat transparent, but um, it it leads you to question the intent part of it, and I don't think that's something that you can necessarily get a clear perspective on from a certain spot on the field. You need to have perhaps multiple refs viewing it, and I, I, don't, I don't see that really changing. Yeah, I have to, off the top, I have to agree with Navid. You know, we, we really can't second-guess the, uh, the refs. They have an incredibly hard job with all the action on the field, um, and they have, they have visibility problems as well as the drive teams do. Um, I think the other thing complicating it um, is that, you know, if the ref is watching one robot and all of a sudden he sees severe contact in the neutral zone with another robot, um, you know, the, the robot that made the severe contact could just be flying over the defense from their courtyard to get a ball out of the neutral zone. And, you know, if he's off watch, if the ref is off watching something else and all he sees is his robot coming flying through, you know, it's, I, I feel for the drive team. I, you know, I'll be honest mm-hmm. with you, my team got a yellow card because of this. Um, we, we hit a team on the, on the opposite outer works as we were flying across our outer works to get into the neutral zone. And, you know, my heart went out to my kids, but... You know, at the same time, the ref is just totally overloaded in this game. So I don't know that there's a lot that we can do. You know, we could sit around in Monday morning quarterback at a whole bunch. But this is a really tough game because of the confined spaces and the extreme amounts of energy it takes to get in and out of those defenses and just the the way that the rules are structured with regard to those outer works as an example. So I think Mm -hmm. we're going to continue to see this this issue of of red card, yellow card, where teams – um, may not have had the, that intent, um, but we're just asking an awful lot in a confined space with, with human referees. Right. Exactly. And uh, we actually saw, uh, I was down at Dartmouth this past weekend, and yeah. uh, in finals, going into finals two during setup on the field, uh, 195 ended up earning a yellow card for their alliance because they stepped on a defense when they were setting their robot. And, uh, you know, luckily for 195 and uh, the rest of their alliance, they, it didn't end up being a factor, but that's the sort of thing that can just lose the event for you. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't think about it. It's like, oh, it's a yellow card. I'm not going to get another yellow card. You know, I stepped on a defense once. Uh, I won't do it again, you know. But... You know, G24, if you don't give the red card for strategy, you could certainly give a yellow card immediately if there's a tip and a damage from it, right? And if you already had a yellow card from accidentally stepping on a defense, that's it. Red card, you're done. Um, You know, and and maybe done for the event, depending on what the severity of it is. I think, Ty, you might be able to comment on this a little bit, but the high bumper zone also lends itself... Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit this year to um, tippier uh, pushing scenarios, especially when it gets to tall robots versus short robots. Yeah, the, yeah, the the big moment of inertia on there, or sorry, just the moment on there is a big factor. 
And then you've got these very large wheels, so the robots aren't very high to the... Your center of gravity is naturally higher. So, you know, it's just this... I think it's kind of like a perfect storm. You know, if there was to be a game in which there would be inadvertent tipping in defense, it would be this game. So, I think, I think it's something... Unfortunately, you have to rule by the letter of the law. You have to go with what you see, not necessarily how you interpreted it. And that's the only way to make it fair. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to come out on the short end of the stick there. But, you know, honestly, if you're playing defense, then that's the risk. That's the risk you run. Unfortunately, for the teams playing, you know, unfortunately, that rule was written for teams playing defense too aggressively. And this came back to bite the per the team that was on offense but it's just a just a perfect storm you know yeah absolutely um so let's move on to uh the next topic uh which is this is going to have some bearing on uh you know alliance strategies we're we're three and a half weeks into the season now going into week four are we starting to see a really solidified strategy for people picking going into the next few weeks in championships. I think so, what we're... Go ahead, Naveed. Yeah. Alright. Um, one thing that I, I saw this week, and I think that it's happening other places as well, is when you're looking for an alliance partner at a weaker event, I know, for example, out in Georgia, Albany only had 25 teams. So you've got, on your last pick, a choice between robot or an another robot. And when you're looking at such a small pool, it's trying to figure out what do you really want in a third alliance partner. And I noticed that a lot of teams will try and find, at the least, if you can get somebody who can do that autocross. And that extra 10 points is a big deal, especially if all partners on your alliance are doing it. It's not quite the same as it was in 2014, where you got a little chunk of change. There are, there are a significant amount of teams, unfortunately, especially at a lot of the smaller pool events that can't do it. And taking a gamble on somebody who can cross or potentially get a high goal shot um, can be mm -hmm. the, the money that you need moving forward. And we saw that with Skunkworks Alliance um, yeah. at Central Washington. Their third partner uh, occasionally, I mean, it's like probably about 50% of the time, maybe would get less. The cross. Yeah, maybe less, but they'd get the cross and then they shoot for the high goal and 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 they'd make it sometimes, right? So mm -hmm. sometimes you had a twenty point auto and that was the twenty third pick of the event, right? And it's like they should have probably been picked earlier than that for sure. Um, if if our alliance had been in uh, fifty eight hundred three Apex's alliance had been um, in a little bit better position, we we might have gone for that too. But um, we needed somebody with a little bit more overall functionality um, in the rest of the match. But you know, kudos to them. Right spot, right time. Um, but if you can, if you can get that, all you need at that point is is the most auto points you can get, and uh, and somebody that can can get on the batter at the end of the match. Yeah. So in in Australia, we uh, we had a pretty good situation where we had uh, forty plus teams showing up. So we didn't quite get into that situation where uh, where nearly everybody's making it into the playoffs. And uh, like I said at the top of the show. Uh, Marsden 5087, they were the 23rd ranked robot, and these guys can shoot high goal. Um, so it was, it was good that they uh, that the scouting systems that the teams had, another sign of maturity, if you will, um, were able to pick up on that. And these guys um, were an integral part of, of their team making it into the finals. Um, I think the other thing for us, for example, we were the uh, 
number one ranked alliance. We were picking that third pick last. And we picked 6035 Oladala, and they just fit the bill absolutely for a strategy where you had some high goal shooters. Um, you had, uh, you know, in the in the top ranked alliances, you had teams who could just send one robot in and, and take down the defenses and send off a, another robot to try to capture the tower, though uh, we didn't manage that. Um, and I think that there was a bit of a depth there in uh, the alliance selection where you could sort of partition the game into into those three pieces. Now, I think in Australia, at least, and, and a couple other events that I saw as well, um, there seems to be this tentativeness about playing defense and how we're going to approach that. What is, you know, what exactly is defense going to look like uh, with, you know, G24 and uh, the difficulties in interpreting it? How, how is that going to unfold? That's, that's really interesting to me. And I think we're just starting to see some of that now. Um, you know, we got a yellow card in the in the uh, playoffs because of um, because of stepping on defenses, and it really caused us to step back to uh, to Ruth's point earlier, I think, um, and, and making it uh, a little bit more uh, cautious. But um, gosh, you know, it, it's kind of scary to see a match in the balance because of of uh, referees not being able to see and robots flying all over the place when really you're just trying to play offense. Mm hmm. So I'd like to pose a question to the group. In the beginning weeks, we basically, teams were scouting for that third partner that could cross a, that could cross defenses to guarantee the breach. But now that we've seen that so many teams can do the breach by themselves, or you can do two out of three do the breach, is the ability to cross and handle most of those defenses or have a reliable breacher in the third less important? Or is it just as important to ensure that they get back for that, that batter? I, I think it somewhat depends on um, the, the makeup of the other two partners, right? Because I could easily see a scenario where maybe my first two robots are capable of doing the breach, but one of them would really prefer just to be cycling through the low bar. And so in that scenario, if my third partner can help breach the defenses, then I'm much more likely to get a capture and the breach as an alliance, which is huge, right? As opposed to if mm -hmm. my other two partners are slowed down because both of them have to be cycling over other defenses and so they don't get enough balls in for the capture, right? But if if that's not a concern, right? So for example, like a, a superpower alliance like 254, 1678, um, or something like when that. When would that ever happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it never happens, right? Um, I, I think then you're you're really looking more for auto points and um, and defense, right? And just try and keep the the score differential as big as possible. Well, and I think it's really interesting to see with the way the strategy breaks down. You have those very distinct ways of playing the offense. You either can have perhaps somebody playing that main breaching game and passing off balls to a slightly more accurate shooter. Um, or you may have both of those top-end robots cycling, going across, breaching a defense, shooting a ball back to the neutral zone to grab another. And I think that it's just there is no real cookie-cutter solution to the game. And I think it's very dependent on not only what style robots you have on the top end, but what your alliance has and what you need. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, um, and going back to the... Uh, I forget who mentioned it a moment ago about um, getting that third 
uh, robot back, if it's playing defense, getting it back through the defenses mm -hmm. and onto the batter to get the capture, um, that has to be a consideration as well because uh, with the 25 seconds left, if that robot's going to struggle getting over the, the outer works into your into your courtyard to get up on the batter, then you're really sacrificing that capture for the sake of all that defense. And I think, um, especially as we get here into the second half of the season and onto championship, I don't think uh, alliances are going to be willing to sacrifice that. So it's, it, I think, to the point that was made earlier, um, you really need robots who can reliably get across at least some subset of defenses, whether you partition your strategy that way or not, or else you're just not going to get that final capture. Absolutely. And then uh, you also kind of have to ask the question um, when you're looking at your picks, do you pick the team that's a mediocre breacher, but they're a really good climber? Or mm. do, you, do you try and wait and hopefully there's a climber left at the end? But I don't know, what do you guys think? Well, we ran... Uh, so... Oh, go ahead, Ty. So we actually kind of made that decision in... Uh, we made that decision in at Reading in week two, when we came, when it came to our choice, we obviously went with our number one choice was 133 because they were the best high goaling robot there and they could breach and we could hand, and it was going to be great. And then they went and said no. So <laughs> we went and uh, we picked 1058, but it was, there was actually some debate between 1058 and 4905. 4905 is by far, not by far, but is definitely a better pure breaching robot than 1058. They drive faster, they go over the defenses faster. However, we didn't need 4905. We didn't need somebody as good as 4905 to guarantee the breach. You know, 319 could do it themselves. And if we just had two, two successful and capable robots, then we could definitely do it anyway. So we actually ended up, do, we did go for 1058 because of their climb. And because, you know, if you've got two robots that can breach and, and two robots that can breach or and one that can climb, then you might as well go for those extra 10 points. Yeah, and that's, um, I, so I was going to say our alliance um, at uh, Central Washington um, was on the eighth seed. Uh, 5803 was picked by 2930 Sonic Squirrels and then um, we got 4513 Circuit Breakers as our, um, as our third pick. And uh, we ended up actually playing it where um, we as 5803 went and played defense, so we'd um, we'd we'd put a ball in right at the beginning to help with the capture, go over and play defense. Um, but we had a climber, so um, between 40 and 35 seconds left in the match, so plenty of time uh, to make sure you're out of the courtyard. That's when we'd start coming back to make sure we were in position uh, on the batter to climb, um, and it was it was very powerful. And it, unfortunately, um, our alliance partner struggled a little bit. Um, with some of their mechanisms, and uh, we weren't able to get the capture, um, so it didn't it didn't matter too much there. Uh, we got bested by a very good number one alliance, but uh, we certainly made it close. And the, and the addition of that climb really really helps um, in close matches, even just psychologically, to have the opposing alliance know that they have ten points they ha at least that they have to make up um, if they're if they're in a close match. I think you could say the same thing psychologically about the the opening the uh, the auto part of the game this year as well. Mm -hmm. The difference between having a, a ten point auto and a twenty point auto is just enormous uh, going into the tele up because uh, you know in a lot of places 
um, without that high goal shooter, that's going to be ground, or the climber for that matter, that's going to be ground that's really hard to make up if you're doing low goal and, and you're just relying on breaching. And then uh, defense selections are an interesting. Uh, yeah. Very, very, very interesting uh, change as well. We're, we're seeing a lot more, uh, at least at events that I've watched, there's a lot more taller defenses being selected. Um, you know, I, I saw a lot of Drawbridge and Portcullis out on the field at the same time. Um, has Have you guys really changed the way that you're picking defenses in, um, in eliminations or playoffs rather than during the quals? I mean, it, it really depends on if a team has vision tracking or not. I think one of the best scenarios where a team might say, okay, let's put up the, the drawbridge and the portcullis is if you feel you might be slightly outgunned and you know that that vision blocking the other high goal scoring robot on the other alliance could make a difference. And it also, I mean, something to keep in consideration is that if you have the ability to put it in a location that blocks their vision, but also doesn't necessarily impact you as much, say, put it in front of your defensive robot, since you're going to be in, right in front of you playing defense anyways. Yeah, and we've seen, we've seen a few situations where not putting a tall or a blocking defense um, in position two right next to the low bar has allowed some human players to be able to, to get a few balls through. Um, I think we saw that in Virginia. I might be misquoting that, but um, I, I believe uh, Eyelight and Triple Helix's alliance was able to to take advantage of that a little bit. Um, but the other big thing that, that we noticed um, is a lot of the tall defenses don't get played very much in, in qualification matches because you've got unknown partners um, sometimes and, and the strategy and your positions are randomized. Um, and so you don't necessarily end up with, you, you don't want to take the hit, right? Especially if you're not playing defense um, to put the big vision blocker in front of you. When you get to playoffs, that means that you don't necessarily have data that says whether teams can or cannot do a particular defense. Um, so we saw teams putting, you know, portcullis out there, and and then it just gets blown away, right, in the first five seconds of the match because turns out that they can do it really well. And then in other scenarios, you put a portcullis out there, and it just completely stymies them. And it's not because they don't have something to deal with it; they just haven't been practicing it. They haven't used it. Um, so it's it's interesting those games that get played with, um, well, do you take a chance on a defense that theoretically they can do, but they haven't shown capability? Yeah, I think you know coming back. I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but coming back <laughs> back again to to penalties. I think the limited visibility of of those defenses in particular. <clears throat> forget about what what uh, your opposition alliance is all about. Um, if you're concerned about getting a yellow card or, or worse yet. Um, any lack of visibility that you induce for your drive team, but also for the referees, is really going to impact uh, the penalty play. And so I, I think, at least in Australia, there was some some hesitancy about uh, how to use those uh, vision-blocking defenses in an effective way um, because teams were quite concerned about it going the other way, uh, going against them, rather than helping them out. Um. Well, I, I've got I've got something to add here. Um, since since we're kind of talking about the Class C stuff, um, with uh, with Drawbridge and, and Sallyport, they so far they're rarely getting um, used 
in playoffs, right? As far as they're used for their vision blocking capabilities, but teams are very purposefully avoiding trying to damage them. Um, at least the majority of teams. And occasionally you'll get a scenario where somebody needs to try and go do one um, in order to get a few extra points or somebody got stuck on another uh, defense. And it's really, really, really uh, interesting to watch alliances try and coordinate a classy defense in playoffs um, where time-wise it may not make a whole lot of sense. And I, I'm kind of curious if, if, we, if people think that um, as we get to the higher levels of play, it's going to be so important that you get all of your defenses down um, or that you, you do that um, or if it's just going to continue to kind of get ignored um, from the points-getting standpoint. I think, I think come championships, what you're going to see is you're going to see teams that can quite literally be orchestrated. You're, it's going mm -hmm. to take, you know, these two teams go through and they do their cycles. Your third team is hopefully delivering balls or maybe even contributing, maybe playing defense. And then right in the last 20 seconds, they're all in the middle of the field. One's holding the sally port open. All three go through the sally port. They all get on the batter and two of them climb. And, you know, like that's that's the dream scenario that I'm seeing. But, I yes, I agree with you. I agree with your question that you asked in that I think, it'll be completely necessary. It'll, it's getting to a point, we're starting to see, you know, we're getting to the point where we're going to need two very, very good high goal shooters to, you know, start increasing the cap of the scoring on this game. And that's two high goal shots. So if you can score those, if you can get through that, then that's, you know, that's where you've got to find points somewhere. And I think your point about orchestration is exactly right. It's going to start looking more like, uh, you know, creating an offensive play for the NFL where you're going to chalk out, you know, uh, the flow of robots as the play evolves, if you will, just for your uh, alliance. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, and then I, th I think uh, robot reliability and how well, I think a lot mm -hmm. of scouts are going to be keeping track of, well, your robot was dead in this match. What was the deal with that? And, uh, I guess we're seeing a lot of calm issues this week. Well, I think just in general, from a scouting perspective, too, is you can pull up a list of data Friday night, and unlike data in previous years, I'm seeing a huge list of teams that either have a, a, a dead or a comms issue on there in one or more matches, some of them five, seven matches, where there was some sort of intermittent connectivity or issue like that. And, I mean, the blacklist can fill up pretty quickly that way. Well, and I think another thing that we're noticing, right, is there's just so many different ways that robots can die on the field <laughs> this year. Yeah. Um, whether it's getting stuck, whether it's physical damage, whether it's um, the new radio, uh, the new radio giving them problems. I've I've heard a lot of teams talking about how the barrel connector on the new radio um, loosens up pretty quickly and no longer stays in well, and so teams have started um, taping those in or, or doing something to try and help. I'm not even just strain relief, but like trying to physically hold it in so that bumps and jostles aren't making an intermittent connection. Um, I know Wait, we you got... you mean that, that radio wasn't designed to go on a robot that drives over steel defenses all the time? I mean, <laughs> not specifically designed. Yeah, it, uh... think... <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I was, I was going to say, you know, um, 
we were pretty excited uh, when the season started that we got these plans for all the defenses in such detail. Um, and, you know, we quickly set about uh, in a partnership with, uh, with Barker 4613 to, to build two sets of defenses to practice with. Um, and we had a bit of a chat at the beginning of the season about the fact that the, that the uh, plans that first gave you were out of wood and how yeah. playing with the wood is going to be different than playing with the metal. Mm-hmm. Well, so you know, after two, sorry. So different. It's so different. Yeah. After two weeks, you know, after Minnesota and Australia, before we put our robot in the crate for Hawaii, we flipped it over and looked at the belly pan and you would have thought it had gone through world war two battle. And, you mm-hmm. know, I'm just wondering as we, as we get the better teams who are playing lots of events winding up in, in St. Louis, how much, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but um, you know, uh, damage or or fatigue. Uh, yeah, fatigue built up week after week after week is finally going to hit out. And if if you got to do a drivetrain swap out on Thursday in St. Louis, oh, I, I can't imagine what that's going to do to being prepared to get out there on the field and build some of these plays uh, in your subdivision. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it doesn't it doesn't help the when the fact that. The matches where you're most, where it's most important to be reliable, are at the end of the day, and the events yeah. in which it's most important to win matches are at the end of the season, uh, which is just the way that things work out in general. But you know, the ro- these robots are getting shaken to pieces throughout the entire day, and then they're expected to go and work flawlessly as they've been working the whole time. We had problems when our in our match in our matches where. We had a drivetrain that we had a drivetrain on our robot that was working great, and unfortunately, 6161 started throwing chains in the middle of their matches, and which prevented a couple of captures. But that's something that you can't predict. You know, you can't unless you're going through the pits and manually inspecting all of these robots before you do, which I'm sure some you know teams like 254 would do. Um, you're just not going to be able to predict some of these some of these dead robots, and I'm a little nervous about how the eliminations are going to play off in some of these high-caliber high cal- <clears throat> high caliber events. I wouldn't want any matches to be decided by dead robots. I well, mean, I'll, and I, I'll make a bold prediction right now. Sorry, Navid, I'll, I'll let you go, go in a second. It. But um, there are going to be high-power alliances at championships which get knocked out by, by an unfortunate dead robot. Um, it's it's going to happen. I think it will, in some senses, quote unquote, decide championships. I think at least one favorite alliance from a from a, a, a subdivision is is going to go out early, um, just to you know, robot going down. And and we do get the fourth robot at championships. But if you go down in a match and it's a critical match against a good opponent, uh, yeah. you you kind of only get one one do over. Uh, it kind of gives a little bit of a scare and a throwback to 2012 in that sense. I'm I'm hoping mm-hmm. that we don't see anything quite like that, but it is something to think about. And I do think on that note that a lot of teams are thinking about it, especially at the higher level. What can we do in terms of preventative measures to make sure that we're ready? I mean, for some of those teams that's bringing in a a whole new subsystem that you can swap out potentially, but in a lot of cases, uh, it could be something like, having some sort of additional skid plate, like throwing, I know, for example, skunks have additional polycarb on the bottom of their drive base because when they drive over that rock wall, it's a it's a brutal thunk. And it's like trying to find those little things that you can perhaps put on there 
that um, take the wear away from some of the main systems. Here's a cra- I was going to say, here's a crazy thought for you guys. The, the winning alliance on Einstein is going to be the alliance that didn't necessarily play the most, but maybe had robots that played a little bit less than the most. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely very, say that. Very and well may be the case. You've, you've got a lot of teams that are playing in districts right now that are already at least 24 matches in. Um, you know, and you look at uh, 319 with Ty. You guys played 19 matches two weeks ago, and you're set to play at least another 12 this upcoming weekend. Uh, hopefully more. Hope, hopefully and more. And then there's the neutrons. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, Apex alone, you guys have already played, uh, what, 28? 20 uh 28 30 matches so far how's how is yeah that? it would have been it would have been 28 because we we got knocked out in two in both um both of our events but we just signed up for a third event this weekend um we're on the bubble for district points uh maybe maybe not making it to district champs kids said they wanted one more play if this was going to be it so we're going to Philomath. um so <laughs> if we do make district champs uh with our robot and then we make it to world champs with our robot I, it's going to have some a lot of runtime on it and you know i've mm-hmm. i've been impressed with how it's held up so far we certainly designed it over designed and um but even so we completely gut our practice robot um when we go to competition we take off the spare robo rio um with the spartan board on top we take off basically everything except our main mechanism got an extra set of hanging hooks got extra um finger mechanism got an extra wheelie bar mechanism we got extra wheels and it's just because we just you can't afford to have something like that go out and not be able to replace it. We've bent yep. half-inch aluminum axle, like, nicely formed to a 60-degree angle just by hitting it on, you know, part of the field. Yeah, we we actually got, went through and we ordered a bunch of lengths of 35-chain, 25-chain, and master links so that we could just have extra chain for us or even our alliance partners if something were to happen because yeah. I've never seen so many drivetrains drivetrain chains break in my entire life and yeah. thankfully our main mechanism which is kind of our do everything mechanism right now is less than 30 pounds so we're just taking that off our practice robot and bringing it in as the uh, as the withholding allowance and hopefully hopefully we never have to use it but if we do it'll it's probably going to save our our district event you know I'm just. Uh, I mentioned it last episode, but I'm thinking about 125. They they had yeah. a week zero. They already had a regional under their belts. They went to Arizona. They've got three more districts coming up starting this week. A district championship. All of that before they get to worlds and and then you have to make it through subdivision play and playoffs, which I'm sure are going to be plenty brutal at the subdivision level. So that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of matches. <laughs> So yeah. So so now's the point where I wonder if they serialize parts on their robot, and and we can ask them at the end of the season how much of the robot went was in the bag on on bag day, <laughs> ends up at, you know at the at the end of championships because well, you, you, know, you just I, turn the robot upside down and you shake out all the uh, aluminum and steel dust and you uh, weigh it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But we've I mean we've seen sprockets get sheared completely, you know, sheared. completely yeah. sheared off. Um, I think I think that's one thing that yeah, Naveen, you mentioned or Ty, you mentioned twenty five chain. I think that's something that caught a lot of teams off guard because 
we've been designing with 25 chain drivetrains for so long with no issues and all of a sudden you've got a game that really wants bigger wheels and really wants compact robots and is just brutal and and they're failing um and you know i'm really happy with our decision to uh go with the kit chassis um for the belts because the belts hold up great because they can take the shock loads like that and i would much mm -hmm. rather have my have my drivetrain ratchet a little bit um under a under severe load than than break a chain or strip out a sprocket you know, I think yeah. he mentioned 2012 or something. I think a lot of people looked at the defenses and said, oh, this is just like the bump and rebound rumble. Mm -hmm. no, I'm just got to <laughs> can go over that. And, well, you know, in one sense it's true, but you're going over it, you know, 15, 20 times a game. <laughs> it's a whole different ball mm -hmm. game then. Well, yeah. and the number of I'm, teams I'm, that took that at high speed in 2012 were very few. Right versus the number of teams that are that are dukes of hazarding over over these ones. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that uh, we did say back towards the beginning of Stronghold that the rock hole is actually going to be one of the hardest defenses that we see in the entire game. You know, forget mm -hmm. visibility issues. The rock hole is a robot killer. Yeah, it is. It's it's interesting. There are certain defenses which are. You know, more which are more difficult, I think, for the majority of the teams. But the rock wall um, is probably the one that just kills robots mm -hmm. in a match the most. Um, not necessarily stuck. Mm -hmm. I think more teams get stuck on the moat. But but watching a robot go over a defense and then just die, you know, either power issues or radio reboot or whatever, it's the rock wall. It's got to be the rock wall. I, I mean, I remember talking to one of Skunk's lead programming students, and he said the Robo Rio was reading like 16 Gs when they were slamming down on the other side of the rock wall during early season practice. Yeah. Wow. It's tough. And I, I think it's also interesting to see what commercial off-the-shelf parts are starting mm -hmm. to fail as well, um, because you know these were designed for these weren't designed for, for games that were. I'm trying to think of oh, Evil Knievel. There we go. That's my new analogy. Dukes of Hazard is overused. Everybody, everybody that's cool says Evil Knievel now. Um, but you know these these commercial off-the-shelf parts weren't designed to be taking these 16G impacts. So we're starting to see, you know, some of the IndyMark hubs are that never failed ever in the previous years are, are cracking. And I actually saw on 2363 Triple Helix, they actually. Like sheared all of the teeth off of their drivetrain third stage mm -hmm. on their Vexpro ball shifters. Uh, they're, I mean, they are by far not nice at all to that robot when they're driving it over defenses. I mean, if <laughs> robots could cry, twenty three sixty three would be in a corner crying. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's interesting to see that these really robust parts. You know, everybody is just people aren't really expecting these parts to fail in the ways that they are, and it's. It's interesting. I, I, I want to piggyback off of that because um, I think the other thing that, that's, that's interesting that's happening is not just drivetrains, but teams aren't used to designing other mechanisms to handle the kinds of shock loads that come with a robot driving over a bump. Um, and so, like, if you've got an arm, maybe you've sized your arm and your gears properly to handle as fast as you can drive the arm with the motor. But if you're putting, you know... 10, mm -hmm. 15, 16 Gs into this when you go over the bump and you start, you know, shearing off uh, 
shafts or um, breaking teeth in gearboxes or you know blowing up Vex Pro mm -hmm. Versa planetaries and things. And I think a lot of teams just they 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 just didn't think about it because these things have been so bulletproof uh, for so many years, and and now they're getting something that they they probably weren't designed quite to handle this level. Yeah, we did. We just did exactly that. We were at practice today, and our center of gravity just works out such that if we try to go over the, um, if we go over the cheval to free, the it doesn't tip to the other side before we are in the air launching to the other side of it. And we did that, and we landed, and our our robot stopped on the ground, and our arm just kept going, and it made the most mm -hmm. awful, awful noises. And we actually had to go through and like look at count all the missing teeth on the gears and make sure we pulled that many missing teeth out of the gearbox so that we didn't get anything jammed up. Oh, oh, oh man. <laughs> yeah. And we had, we had the same thing happen in Minnesota with our, our high goal shooter. Um, you know, the, the drivers get quite a bit excited under game conditions versus practice. And uh, it just tore apart our high goal shooter. Our drivetrain was fine. And so we had to come up with another solution for keeping that thing together when you're hitting 16 or 20 Gs, like uh, Navid, Navid mentioned. You just don't think about engineering those subsystems like that. But it is one robot, and when you have a high impact with a, a defense, that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen. It's just going to transfer itself throughout the whole robot. Yeah, and that's actually a good point that you brought up, is when you're standing behind, um, when you're standing behind the... What, was, what am I trying to say? Behind that glass, you can't hear somebody screaming at you from the other side. Mm -hmm. Never mind what your robot noises are making from the other side. So it becomes this video game, so to speak. Uh, or if you're 1678, literally a video game. Um, where you're just sitting there, you're driving this robot, and it's supposed to move the way that you expect it to move. But you don't have any of that auditory feedback in the way that it's, you know, if it's happy moving that way or not. So... We found that we drive that 319 drives their robot much harder at competitions than we do at practice, just because we can't hear if we're beating it up or not. Back. Yeah, right. It's a good point. And I think uh, one one interesting one, and I don't want to I don't want to steal too much thunder from the shoutouts that are coming up, but um, the holy cows are using their 10 10 wheel uh, uh, performance wheel, so not pneumatic wheel, and uh, that is going to make a lot of noise and hit very hard when it comes down off those bumps. And uh, good luck to y'all. I know you built a great robot. I hope it survives. All right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and with that, let's take it into shoutouts. Um, for coming into week four, I know that all the GameSense crew is going to be at events this week. Uh, Steph, Evan, and Veed are going to be at... Philomath. I'll be there Philomath. in spirit. Oh, okay. Navid will be there in spirit. Um, I'm going to be uh, lead queuing up at UNH Durham, where Ty is going to be competing with 319, and Francis is going to be down in Providence competing with 190 at Ride. Um, so uh, let's let's just go through and see who wants to make shoutouts this week. Uh, Evan, let's send it over to you. All right. 
Well, since uh, we got some flack for not shouting out to the California teams, I got two shout-outs for California teams because there's two California events this weekend. My first one goes to my other team, 971. Um, you guys have a fantastic robot. I'm really excited to see how it performs on the field. So good luck to you all. Wish I could be there. Um, and the other goes to uh, 696. Um, they've been building absolutely beautiful robots for the last few years. Um, and they haven't quite performed up to the level that they want them to. So um, looks like another fantastic robot. Really hoping you guys um, can can go out there and, and perform. Okay. Um, so I've got a shout out for Steph. Um, Steph also wants a shout out to 971. Uh, they have a crazy looking robot as usual. And uh, I think we're all looking forward to seeing it work. Um, I'd like to give it a shout out to 1511. Uh, they were the finalists up in Greater Toronto East, and they should really be a standout at Finger Lakes. And, uh, you know, I'd also love to give a shout out to uh, the Wisconsin Regional. You know, when you said Wisconsin, you said it all. Um, <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've got, um, uh, you know, 1675 won St. Louis, and then uh, they've got 192, who was a finalist at Arizona, to 125. Um, they've got four teams that were eliminated in the semis. They've got another four teams that were eliminated in quarters. And then you've all, you're also looking at 1306, who's won a lot of chairman's awards uh, in the existence of the event itself. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of really hungry teams. Uh, and it's it's going to be an interesting regional to watch. Um, let's throw it over to Naveed. My shout out, we mentioned them a little bit earlier, goes to 1538, the Holy Cows. I had a great time getting to work with them at Champs last year. And as always, it's another beautiful robot. I expect to see a little bit of a bounce back for them this year. Um, always my favorite wiring in FRC. They rolled out their own Cow MXP uh, Navex style board. They got a three-stage PTO, which is also, I mean, looks custom. Um, and I'm excited to see how that thing's, thing works. The intake seems to have some tricks up its sleeve, and I haven't quite figured out all that's under the hood yet, so I'm excited to see how it plays this week. All right. Ty, who do you want to shout out this week? My first shout out goes to Team 6161. They, we had a great time working with them out there at, <clears throat> out there at the North Shore District, and they really had, like, we actually, our data says that they were the eighth best breaching robot there. So it was great working with them. And I just realized that we're going to get to compete again with them at the Pine Tree District in week six. So I'm excited for that. And then I'd like to shout out to 1519. Usually they compete week one, they get their blue banner right out of the way, and then they <laughs> just go on and dominate the rest of the season. But this year they've uh, they've waited to week four to go for that blue banner, and I can't wait to play with them at the UNH. They just wanted to give everybody else a chance. All right. <laughs> and uh, let's round that out with Mike. Mike, who do you want to give a shout-out to this week? Yeah, I guess the general topic of my shout-out is going to be how do they handle the travel because it's killing me. Um, so at the top of my list is... Uh, is the Hawaiian Kids 359. These guys do three or four regionals a year. To get to them, they got, except for their home regional, Hawaii, they got to hop on an airplane. Well, not only do these guys do that, but they go and win blue banners every week. Uh, week one in Minnesota, <laughs> week three up at RPI in New York. Um, you know, my hat's off to them. This is, we're, we're talking, you know, sort of real, um, 
real professional athletes almost that they handle this travel so well. It's not just the machine, it's the people. And they do it week in, week out, every single year. So my hat's really off to them. I'd also like to give a similar shout out to 4817 One Degree North, the team from Singapore. These guys rolled into town last week on a red eye from Singapore. That's an eight-hour flight for you guys. Wow. Um, they, they came off the plane, came right to the regional, and it was just a bit too much to ask in contrast to what 359 does. So my heart goes out to those guys. They deserve a shout out for toughing it out and putting in 110%, you know, if we could use that euphemism, um, at the event. And then back again, Chicago Knights, 1739. They uh, they came to Australia. They're playing next week. I, I don't know exactly know where, but they're in an event uh, for week five. So they've got to tough it out in terms of the, the basically, you know, let's say 70 hours of travel to and from Australia. So, uh, you know, let's see how they do when they come back. And then sort of the unsung heroes of Australia are our rookies. Um, some of these people come in by bus on a 10-hour drive. Some of them come in by car. Some of them fly cross-country. It's, it's a four- or five-hour flight. Um, and they, I have to say, my hat's off to them. They showed well. And uh, there's nothing but good things to come in Australia if, if this was the rookie crop of 2016 Stronghold. That's fantastic to hear. All right. So do you guys watch in tonight uh, out on Twitch and YouTube? Uh, we're going to go into a quick break. Uh, if you haven't got your question already, get it in now. Uh, exclamation point Q or exclamation point question followed by your question. And uh, hopefully we'll get to it after the break. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're going into the uh, question and answer round here on GameSense. Uh, and our first question is from Azatoth. Uh, do you think captures and breaches should act as tiebreakers during qualification matches? Uh, who wants to take this one? Um, I'll start. Uh, no. All right, next. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to give a reason? <laughs> Is that your final no. answer? And why? Please answer no, in an so essay form. <laughs> if so, why? Um, so in qualifications, I don't think so. I think the I think that the ties are part of the ranking system there in mm -hmm. that if you get a tie, you only get one ranking point for that. You don't get one or zero. So I think that that works. Um, so not having ties in the ranking system, um, I, I don't know how that would work out too great. In, in eliminations, um, that might be, I don't know, because having, having in well, eliminations, it, it is a having, in eliminations. it is? Yeah. I thought it was fouls first. Fouls first, and then yeah. cumulative sum of breach and capture, and then defense, then, then auto, and then defense is crossed, I think. I have to go back to the rules uh. to look. But it, it definitely is in there. No, um, oh, okay. the, the fourth tiebreaker, if I remember correctly, is uh, the sum of your challenge points, scales and challenges. Uh, we yeah, actually saw that right. come up at Dartmouth. Um, and yeah, I can't yeah, remember if it was the right. quarterfinals or semifinals, but uh, score went up and it was like 127, 2027 20, victor. And the entire, the entire <laughs> building kind of stopped from like, that's weird. <laughs> why? Why is yeah. that wrong? 
Uh, and it, it turned out it wasn't wrong. Um, well, it's even worse when it's that third tiebreaker match and it comes up as a tie. And if you're having to delve this deep into the amount of tiebreaker orders needed, I think it need, does need to be reconsidered. And it may not get changed for this season, but it, it, what that tells me is that perhaps they should have done it at least somewhat differently. Well, so I'm going to spin this question, the actual question, a little bit differently, um, which is that, and let me go check myself before I actually say something stupid here, but I don't believe that breach and captures are um, tiebreakers for ranking, right? They give you a ranking point. So in that way, they are, you know, a tiebreaker, right? They help your ranking, but as... I, I'm, I think they may be somewhere, if they are on there, they're pretty far down as to um, qualification. Yeah, no, they, they actually aren't to sort. It's uh, First is ranking score. Second order is cumulative sum of auto points. Third is scale and challenge points. Fourth is high and low goal points from auto and teleop. Fifth is cumulative sum of, un, of crossed undamaged defense points. Uh, and then sixth is random sort by FMS. So, so a, a, a alternative way to take this is: should they be counting your breaches and captures separately from the ranking points that they give you, and using that as a tiebreaker as well? So, for example, mm, a team gotcha. which won more matches but didn't get as many breaches and captures is the same number of ranking points as a team that lost but got the breaches and captures. Um, similar I, I to, think I think, 2012. I, I think uh, you know you just listed there the the order in which the the um, the tiebreaker goes and and I think I, I think it's it's pretty well done the way it is. Look, if you can't win based on score, um, then what's the next best thing? Well, the the biggest differentiator among robots is teleop versus auto. Mm -hmm. So I really like the fact that uh, when it comes to a tiebreaker, we're really emphasizing. Uh, you know how much skill and time goes into making that auto a differentiator from one robot to the next, and then going back into the teleop score or the total score and dissecting it. So I really like at a high level um, that sort of dichotomy of uh, how we decide who wins a tie. I agree, and I think trying to use captures or breaches and quals is looking at it from an alliance perspective rather than an individual robot or team's contribution, and I would rather that not be a, an early sort. Yeah. Alright, so uh, so let's move on to the next question, I think, uh, and that comes from Dodar1592. Uh, should the defense dividers be given color so they can be more easily seen by drivers? Let's throw this one to Ty first, I think, uh, since he's spent them a bit of time okay. behind the driver's station. Uh, no. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> and if so, why? <laughs> um, I'm only here so I don't get fined. So, <laughs> I think so. I think the defense dividers are are tough, right? Because they almost have to be clear so you can have some semblance of an idea of what's going on when you're viewing it from the audience. I would really like the little plastic tabs on the ramparts, no, the batter, to have some color and be able to see because I, they're yeah. just impossible. And mm -hmm. you just all of a sudden you see your robot just 
like stop in the middle and jerk to the left and you have to like guess where where it's what's happening yeah i was kind of hoping of seeing like a strip of tape or something around the edge of the of the uh de defense dividers and the, the batter would be great too um you know the reason that they're clear and they, they could be colored but still translucent or something um, the rules say that the it's when the bumpers pass through, and so you know technically, the refs need to be able to see whether the bumpers are fully passing through uh, the divider or not. But um, it'd be nice to have like a, a color stripe or something to be able to at least see the outer edge and infer where the rest of it is. I think personally, you know. But that's just me watching stands. I don't have any behind the glass experience. Okay. Uh so let's let's move on to the next question uh, from Anoop Pangoli. Uh, on the note of alliance selection strats, uh, is there a noticeable difference between regionals and district events in terms of picking strategy? If so, why? Please answer in an essay form. <laughs> <laughs> pick me, pick me, pick me. <laughs> no. I'm going to say yes, actually. Ooh. And And I think because we've seen a bunch of new districts, that being Chesapeake, North Carolina, and Georgia, especially Georgia, North Carolina, on that back end and talking about like Albany for that matter, when you've got such a small district event, when you've got 24, 25 teams, it comes back to, well, which of the remaining robots sucks the least? And I think you lose some sense of strategy in that, in that position, and it's just who is going to be able to physically drive and contribute something to the match? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, that, you mentioned something like that, right? Where you had you have a larger depth of field because the you have more teams there. Yeah, and and I think um, so. I wouldn't I wouldn't say the the difference is regional versus district. <clears throat> I think it's the pool of teams and the and the quality of the pool that really makes the difference. So if if you got an event with you know. 20, I think somebody mentioned 25 teams to, yeah. to let's say 32, 33 teams. You're really not talking about a depth of field there. And at some point, you're not picking, um, you're not picking because of the quality of the robot. You're picking, I'll say, you know, uh, sorry to say this, but you're picking for just the opposite reason, which robot is going to handicap you the least. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in some of these smaller events, I think we really, as a, again, as a community, we need to go back and take a look at how are we going to get those numbers up so that we're putting 24 quality robots into those alliances and how as a group we make that possible um, so that we're preparing those teams to get to the next level at, at Worlds. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, it, you know, and it's interesting to, I think the big difference in, in alliance selection strategy um, at the at the front end, right with the with the first round picks, is whether there are multiple alliances at the event which are capable of capturing or not. Um, yep. Because if you're fighting against the capture bonus, that really shifts how you're selecting your alliance makeup. Versus if you're just trying to score as many points, but a capture is a a rare possibility, um, right? Whether you're going for a good high goal shooter. Um, that's maybe a little bit slower versus somebody who can rapidly pump balls into the local, but isn't going to get you the same point output until you reach the capture threshold. Um, yeah, but I could go the other way on that as well. I could say that if if you don't have a lot of high goal shooters, 
you still want to have them on your alliance with you because that denies the other guys those points. Right. So rather than getting into a, into a situation where you're trying to defend against the capture, if you're in a pure point shootout, forget about ranking points or capture and breach bonuses. If you're in a pure point shootout, I want that high goal shooter on my alliance. Yeah. Rather than absolutely. rather than letting some other alliance have them. So I think it. I think the your argument works in in either scenario and it works really well. It just it kind of it really comes down to what the alliances and what the rankings are, you know, the, the top eight and et cetera. And it it's kind of interesting how much an event can can shift in the feel of the of the playoff matches just based on the top eight order. Yeah, and, but and let, what let's, the possible alliances are. Yeah, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. When you're picking that that second alliance partner, and um, you you want to have somebody who um, you know in in the worst case in, in the smaller events. You want to have somebody who's not going to get stuck on the rock wall or the moat. Mm -hmm. You want to get somebody who, well, what role are they going to play? If I'm going to send them into the into the opponent's courtyard, do they have the ability to get out of there with 25 seconds left and get onto the batter <clears throat> so we can get at least some points out of them that way? And you start working up from um, up from you know how much damage. Will they do to our ability to score points? To when can we start having them actually contributing points in a positive way? And mm -hmm. at the smaller events, you know, where is the threshold for that in terms of those robots and that capability? That makes that that second pick really tough. It does. It it really does. Right. So I you know I think this is uh, it brings us into our next question uh, uh, from Zerk seventeen ten. During championship qualification matches, will achieving both a breach and a capture become an expectation that will be viewed as a failure if it's missed rather than a success if it's achieved? Um, you know, as a note to who are you going to pick, if it's not much of a point, uh, you know, it's not really a point swing during quals, but that extra ranking point is do or die for where you're going to end up in their rankings. Um, you know, you're, I think you're going to see a lot of really otherwise decent teams that if, if they're in a match where they where they miss that breach they're gonna drop because there's there's not really any coming back from missing that breach and that ranking point what do you guys think yeah something something important to remember about championships is that there's 600 teams there yeah and in eight divisions and you know basically you could you could say that about one third of them made it through as you know or you could say that one third of them made it through as third alliance partners some of them are you know some of those one thirds are going to be great but others there, there are reasons why that they were the 24th pick right so i don't think that you're going to get to the point where championship where getting the capture becomes an expectation but if you want to rank high at championship matches like ruth said you're going to need it to at least get that breach and this actually brings up another question I have, which we can um, maybe reach on later is, you know, is this the year in which the favorable schedule pushes teams towards the top more? Um, we can hit yeah. on that later. What, what do you think, Evan? I, I think it does. And I think that's actually probably a, a pretty big topic that we can maybe even talk about next week as a main part of the show. Um, the schedule does have an impact and um, missing the breach is going to be huge. Um, missing a capture, I don't think will necessarily be as as big of a detriment uh, at 
at the championship level. Certainly the, the upper echelon teams are gunning for that every match. They've designed a robot which can do as much as one robot possibly can um, to ensure that they get the capture. But at the end of the day, a win is still worth two ranking points. Um, and so I think whether or not you win or lose the match is going to have more of an effect than whether or not you miss the capture. And so mm -hmm. I, I think the top teams, it's not necessarily a failure in a match if they, if they miss the capture, um, but it certainly can weather the blows of, of the losses and, and maybe a tough match schedule um, if they can do that. But and ultimately, think, the wins are what's going to win it. And I think, uh, you know, for the, for the teams that are going to make it out of the subdivisions, their scouting systems are sufficiently complex enough that they're going to be able to poke into that um, in, into that win loss and, and uh, you know breaching and capturing results and see when teams you know didn't benefit or, or got um, hurt by the schedule and um, you know just like we had uh, some really high goal shooting teams getting uh, picked better than than their ranking deserved because they suffered from the schedule. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see that at at championship as well. That'll that'll sort of smooth itself out. I'm hoping, um, but. Uh, Certainly, um, you know, from, from all the teams that you expect to be there, they're going to be able to do everything. And um, I know they'll look at it as a failure if it doesn't happen. But uh, on average, I would expect, you know, somewhere above three and a quarter to three and a half average ranking points to be competitive coming out of the subdivisions per match. Mm -hmm. This might not be too bold, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Every single first seed on each subdivision will not miss a single breach. Agreed. I agree with that. Yeah, I think yep. so. I can see it. Yeah, it's gonna there be. Go. It's gonna be the too hard to get bowl. up there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, I think I think that uh, this also, and, and you know, another thing to good look, good thing to look at uh, in regards to you know the capturing. We earlier in the show we talked a little bit about climbing robots and how they're going to get. They're going to tend to get picked. Um, we had a question from Abdul Songbird. How important will climbing be on Einstein? It's, yes. I think... Yeah. <laughs> yes, next question. <laughs> so I'd like, I'd actually to like to take this in a direction that I don't think Abdul was expecting. I think it's going to be massively important for that incredible hype factor. You know, we've got the end game back everybody mm -hmm. it's back and we're gonna have that last second neck and neck get the capture go up there and climb in the last in the last second or two and everybody's gonna be screaming and that's gonna be awesome I think um, I think we're getting we're already getting to the point where teams are trying to find the ways to maximize their points and you know um, Karthik Karthik mentioned that the vast majority of these teams, he mentioned last week that a vast majority of these teams just aren't good at Stronghold, and those are going to get better, but the top echelon of these teams are putting up some surprising points, and that 10 point from the climb is going to get more and more important as these alliances become closer and closer to each other. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's a, there's a reason that most of the upper echelon teams uh, are already climbing, um, and many more like the cheesy poofs that I'm sure are planning on adding 
um, later in the season. Um, Lord knows they have the weight for it, looking at their website, you know, and, and what their listed weight of that robot is. So mm -hmm. I, um, I think these teams know that it's very hard, and, and what we've observed is very, very hard to differentiate yourselves consistently at the top tier um, robot to robot. And so, yes, match play is going to come into it somewhat, but anything you can do to give yourself an edge um, to be able to put yourself above another alliance, um, you have to take. And um, I, it, so the, the flip side of that is that the alliances that don't have at least one robot that can climb, um, if they may even if they even make it to Einstein, uh, are I think going out in the early rounds, um, just because you know you're behind 10, 20 points. Um, I mean that's a that's a breach, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Ambulance, want to chime in on that before we move to the next question? Yeah, I guess I, w I would look at it the other way. You know, you're always, uh, or, or a slightly different way. You're you're always looking at how how you invest your time in your robot. Um, so if you're not gonna invest in the in the climb, what are you gonna invest in? The only other alternative to get that sort of point total up is you got to do a a, tw a twenty or thirty point auto. And so it's it's pretty much a trade-off. If if you're not going to go for the climb, you got to pick up those points somehow. Mm -hmm. And when you put you look at putting together an alliance for Einstein, you got to look at how you're going to get those points as well. So if you're not putting up a 50 or 60 point auto in in uh, on Einstein, it's really hard to say, well, I'm not going to make those points up with a climb. So you got to you got to do the math someplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. All right, so we're going to take it into the home stretch at the last question of the night. Uh, and this one is from Dodar1592. Uh, would the round robin limbs style make for better limbs than the old two of three win limbs style? Uh, please answer in an essay format. <laughs> <laughs> if so, well, why? I it's it's a neat concept, but it just makes me think of last year and how much I hated it. I realize it doesn't necessarily have to be based off of averages, but I think there is a reason. If you're the number one seed to be playing against the number eight seed, and while it sucks to be that number eight seed going against the number one seed, the number one seed earns that spot for a reason, and I like I like the bracket structure, personally. I think yeah, I that... Guess... Go ahead, go ahead, Mike. All right, I was uh, going to no, say that. No, you go ahead. You go. Ahead. I'll go. Um, <laughs> I guess you know if as long as as long as there truly is some head-to-head -head interaction, then it makes sense. And and to the degree that that interaction is real and meaningful, and how the the uh, that re that uh, match evolves, then it makes sense. So last year, yeah, we had the can the can uh, burgling, and that was about it in terms of the interaction. So like, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, a. a of interaction, what what I do after that is independent of what you do, and if I can put up a score, then it doesn't matter who I'm playing against. Um, this year we have a heck of a lot more interaction, and we haven't seen how all that plays out yet because we're still early into the strategies. But I think this year is not a year to to consider going back to the round robin thing. This is definitely a year, as as Navid said, where we want to do the head to head and give that give that first. Uh, that, that top-ranked alliance, the benefit of what they achieved in the qualification rounds. And I think the bracket structure really plays towards toward the audience better in that you can yeah. develop stories in these best-of-threes and 
that, oh, they're taking it to the rubber match, and you can talk about the upsets. And while the round robin might, you know, might bring out the better alliance on a, if you take the law of averages and, the you know, take this huge sample of numbers, it might end up showing that the better alliance wins more often. We have to remember that, that this is a, you know, it is a spectator sport that we're trying to develop here. And the whole, you know, we, we're seeing it right now how, how captivating the bracket can be for March Madness. And if we can even get a small increment of that into the eliminations, then I think it'll be really helpful for first. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head, Ty. Right. And, uh, you know, I'll just chime in from a uh, running an event perspective. Uh, Round Robin was just miserable last year trying to make sure that there were no delays for making sure teams were in the right place. And it's just it's it's easier on the teams not having to stress that, well, who am I actually playing in this match and all that stuff. Uh, so with that, uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, I, I think you hold the record for the furthest guest from everybody on the show. Uh, and it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, thank thank you. you. Thanks uh, to the viewers. And uh, good luck. Have fun this weekend. And we'll see you next week. If we see you guys in the events, feel free to say hi. Absolutely. Good night, everyone.